So it's weird that like the implication is that Zora is gonna bone the snake. Wait, what? And oh yeah, definitely. You know what I'm saying? Like the thing that yeah. Adam and Eve did. Is oh, like gotcha. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, and and the, I, the introduction to her burlesque dance is definitely yeah. the implication being that her She's, and this genetically engineered snake are going to do sex stuff. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which is really disturbing, and I'm I'm glad it happens off screen. The, the sexuality of this film is wild, dicey to say the least. Yeah, uh, dicey, dicey. I would go as far as to say it's dicey. I, again, I think especially like uh, when you compare it to Blade Runner twenty forty. Which is a lights out sexy movie. Okay. Um, Here we go. Yeah, you're right. Well, you're right. This is this is where we go. This is where I come in and say, jettison your the old, bias is showing now. Jettison your old cannons. Welcome to the new order. <laughs> Welcome to the new world order. Hey, you in know the what? New world order. Welcome again to the good trash genre cast. Where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you will definitely discuss this week, but usually won't discuss in a film studies course. This week's film is Blade Runner. Which um, I'd like to make a jokey title about this, but it I, comes to shaving jokes. I think the jokey title is that we are three white guys doing a film podcast, and we went over 300 episodes without talking about Blade Runner. Yeah, that's that's well. I mean, well, I, I mean, what's left to say about Blade Runner? I guess we'll find out. Yeah, but, is the question. You kind of got to hold that one in your back pocket till you get good. And I'm glad we waited. <laughs> well, I don't know that we're good. Okay. I guess okay. that's debatable. Okay. Uh, better. There were some you're, heavy you're... hitters early on that we probably should revisit. Now. I think about that all the time. Like I think about that with the Matrix a lot, especially. Memento. Yeah, just movies that we yeah. we did too early in the show's run. Well, I, we, I don't know. We were like still eighty children. episodes in. I honestly anything before episode two fifty at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I think wow. every, I think every hundred to a. Uh, 150 episodes. I'm just like, mm, everything before that can go. Well, I think we found our groove before then. That's true. I think it's like Pokemon. We find a new evolution every time. I think that's it. I, you got to keep things fresh. Well, I guess that is this. Slapping you paint on, the, as good a time, on those Pokemon. Is this as good a time as any to tell the listener what's going on? Uh, well, yeah, so first of all, hello. Hi. Uh, this is a good trash genre cast. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton, and right. uh, I, I wish you guys could see the things my eyes have seen. Uh, and uh, Dalton and I have been talking. Uh, we're going to reformat the show uh, quite a bit. Uh, yep. So, Dustin, just uh, strap in there. Hold okay. on your butt. Just, 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 you know, give me the training wheels Hang so tight, I can buddy. get where I need to go. Nope, it's uh, it's it's uh, sink or swim, bud. So the first thing I want to tell you though is this is not a review show; it's an analysis show. They are different, and we are sick of holding your hand. Well, I don't. I wouldn't put it in that terminology. I, I, I know. Get I'm, that aggressive I, 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 I am tired of coddling you. He's talking well, about you, Dalton. Oh, okay. I'm t- I, well, no, you, the dear listener. I love you, and I'm glad you're here. But we are no longer going to treat you like children. I will continue to treat you like children, but like in a cool way. Where I'm going to say curse. Dalton's words in the front cool uncle. You. Yeah, Dalton's a cool. Dustin's uncle. the patriarchal father uh-huh. who is going to treat you like an adult. I am. Uh, I'm the. Uh, what are you? Uh, I don't know. I'm. Uh, I'm. What's his name? Uh, what's his name? What's what the, is his name? The, I'm the Gary Busey character from uh, Silver Bullet, who just kind of shows up randomly. Cause oh, chaos. neighborly uh, neighbor, which is like an uncle. Yeah, but you're like a neighbor. So you're like, like Gandalf. He's a weirder uncle. I am. Yes, in this hero's journey, I will be your Gandalf. Okay. So the gray, not the white. And, and does so, that make me like? Uh, I'm definitely not an Aragorn. I'm probably more of Saruman. a Gimli or a uh, what's the. Uh, Sean Bean character. That's probably me. Oh, oh you're Boromir? I'm probably a Boromir. I don't you're know. me right now. You know, you haven't died yet. I'm more like a Merrier Yet. P- would, would you get on that? Maybe I'm a Merrier Pippin. Yeah, once you align yourself with a Sean Bean character, we're just counting the days, bud. Yeah, that's a good point. Anyway. So, we're not going to hold your hand. All spoiler bets are off. Yeah. Period. Well, when we started this show, I, I think 
we were kind of following the footsteps of film podcasts before us. Uh, we were a little scared to be uh, spoilery, even when we were talking about older films. But I, I think we finally come to a point in film podcasting where it's super common for you to listen to a show that's not scared of spoilers. And we've always not wanted to be afraid of spoilers. I think we just kind of kept doing it out of habit. That was yeah. just the way we started doing it. And and yeah, go ahead, Arthur. Well, I was just going to say, from my personal experience, when I pick a film podcast to listen to, you know, whatever it might be, it, I typically listen to the episode's with the movies I'm familiar with. Same. Correct. So I, I would assume our listener base is probably in the same category as that. I would agree. And if you know, you're know you listening to this and you've never gotten around to Blade Runner, that's fine, too. I think this is a good primer for getting you into it. I mean, uh, I, I really like the... Uh the adage that April Wolf always says on Switchblade Sisters, it's, you know, not what happens in the movie, but how you think about it. Uh, yeah, and I've always felt that way about the I have, movies. too. And uh, I guess we just kind of shied away from that, again, out of out of habit. So, yeah, we are still going to give you a little bit of a thumbs-down, thumbs-up review at this early point in the show, just to give you an idea of our taste. But we are going to go ahead and uh, get a little bit more into the themes that interest us in that mm-hmm. review section. Right away. So that's going to happen first. And then after that, we are going to expand the syllabus for you all, dear listener. We're going to tell you about more movies that you want to listen to. And then we're going to get really into the nitty-gritty in terms of analysis. So that's how it looks. Spoilery reviews. Um, nitty-gritty. Uh, well, f- excuse me. Not nitty-gritty. First of all, expanding the syllabus. Then nitty-gritty analysis. What does nitty-gritty even mean? I that's a weird word. You know, I don't know. Nitty nits nits are like lice, right? Uh huh. So, licey and dirty. But lice like clean hair because it's easier for them to move. That's true. This really feels like uh, yeah. This is an idiom that we're just throwing around. Uh, we're in the trenches. All willy nilly. Now I'm throwing around willy nilly. Another idiom. Don't know what the fuck it means. I, that would make less sense than nitty gritty, doesn't it? Let's Guys, just say we're in the trenches. Language is. We're funny. in the trenches with this movie. Yeah, we are. We're gonna get in there. We're gonna do <laughs> battle. Uh, we're gonna fight. We're gonna wrestle it. We are yeah. gonna, maybe we're, give it a kiss. We're gonna wrestle it down we're to the ground. Fight oh, okay, a Blade Runner. I'm, I'm mixing the kissing and the wrestling. That's complicated. Yes. I don't, All of us are gonna wrestle choice. Edward James Olmos before the end of the yeah, show. There's some wrestling and kissing in this movie. Can that we, we talk, don't talk about Edward James Olmos's costumes? Yeah, we don't want to talk about the wrestling and kissing in this movie just yet. All, Edward James Olmos's costumes in this movie are excellent. Oh God, How about the them blue contacts too? Yeah, yeah, they look wild on him. Yeah. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and get started then, huh? So, okay, so Arthur, this is your movie. You select this movie, and uh, there are personal reasons why, um, so I'm sure you're going to say some things about that, but do you like Blade Runner? Do we need a synopsis? I, do you have a, I know we've talked about doing a kind of a long... I do have a synopsis. Go ahead, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's the voice ahead. of the cinema is dead. I had a uh, seven-year uh, bout with laryngitis that I finally got cleared up, uh, so we're going to present to you a normal... Uh, synopsis? Yeah. Arthur, tell the listeners in a normal voice that's still dulcet uh, what happens in this damn movie. If you haven't seen Blade Runner. Uh, yeah, I know, right? The year is 2019. Get setting on. is Los Angeles. It's now. It is. It is this year. That's Where so is my flying This car? year in L.A., this is occurring right this minute. Actually, about seven months from now. Guys, am I a replicant? Yes. Yes. Former police officer Rick Deckard, played by Harrison Ford, is detained by Officer Gra- Gaff uh, and brought to his former supervisor, Bryant. Deckard, whose job as a Blade Runner was to track down bioengineered beings known as replicants and retire, or a.k.a. kill them, uh, is informed that four are on Earth illegally. Deckard is then tasked with retiring the four escaped replicants led by Roy Batty. Along the way, he finds himself questioning himself, his purpose, and those around him. This is Ridley Scott's influential sci-fi landmark, Blade Runner. Damn. Yep, that's it. That's a good one, Arthur. That's good. Was that, was that all you, baby? 
partially. I, I, I cobbled it together from things. That was, uh, yeah, well done. My name is Dustin Sells, and I approve of this message. Good. Uh, I, I chose this movie. Uh, my mom, uh, we haven't, I don't think, broached this subject on the, the podcast yet. We have not. Uh, my mom passed away in January, and uh, she was a huge uh, sci-fi fan. Uh, she was a big Blade Runner fan. It was one of her favorite movies. Um, and so I just kind of wanted to pick it. We'd, we'd always talked about doing it. I mean, this is one we've been talking about for a long, as I can remember, as being one movie we're like, we're going to do Blade Runner one of these days. And it seemed uh, apropos to do it now. Uh, I'm glad we got to talk about it. Um, just, you know, my mom was a huge sci-fi fan. And this and Dune and just kind of any of that high concept sci-fi was big with her. Also featuring so- Sean Young. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, th- I I thought about it after saying Blade Runner. We should have done Dune. But I think Blade Runner was a good call. Um, I'm glad we get to talk about it. So I'm excited we're uh, we're doing this. Thank you for allowing this to happen. It's, it's an exciting way to kind of segue into... The way we're going to think about programming the show from now on, too. I think we, we've all decided to loosen the reins a little bit on discussing things that you might actually dis- discuss in a film studies course. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are definitely going to stay in that genre pocket. We've, we've decided that you know these, these kind of canonized genre movies that we do tend to avoid just because they have film studies clout. Uh, we've decided, yeah, we can handle it. But here's the thing that's weird and interesting. I've done a master's degree. Mm-hmm. And I'm almost done with coursework with a PhD mm-hmm. in film studies. Mm-hmm. This movie has never been on a syllabus well, because it's like assumed that you know it. Well, and I, I think that's a good reason, right? Uh, we we say, well, you know, there's these genre genre movies that have this cultural clout, so we're not going to talk about them. But yeah, even with that cultural clout, there's an assumption of familiarity. I think, right? So they get avoided talking about. Um, in, in an academic setting, yeah, I mean, it'll come up in like lecture or yeah. conversation or whatever. But, but you won't study it, it. It's never like the assigned film for the week. Yeah, it's assumed that since you're a cinephile, you've done this required reading. I mean, it's it's like The Godfather. Yeah, which uh, has never come up either. Yeah. yeah, but it's or Casablanca. You know, it's oh, you're a cinephile. You must has. have seen uh, well, those films. Well, guess what? There's a lot of movies. There are <laughs> and a lot you of movies. Can definitely be a cinephile and never have gotten around to Blade Runner. It's an intimidating film. There's what five cuts? Uh, only two, five. Five. Only two of them are really considered any kind of valid. The final cut, which is the version that we all watched, and the, the theatrical cut. Uh, but there's yeah another three cuts in between there. There's a director's and international a work and a, print. Yeah, work print. <clears throat> yeah, and and the director's cut and the work print are both fairly similar to the final cut. The final cut just had really Scott supervising scene selection and stuff like that and supervising the remixing of the soundtrack. Basically the, the addition of a unicorn, right? Uh, the I unicorn, think some of that appears in the director's cut, but this is more yep. extended, I believe. Yeah, they they were never able to intercut uh, Deckard with the unicorn prior to the final cut, I believe is the difference mm. there. I, I spent a lot of time reading about the differences in the five versions, and it's all already gone, listener. So I guess for our purposes, we're going to say there's the final cut and the theatrical cut. Um have either of you watched the theatrical cut before? Yes. I have tried, and I was not able to get through it. I have, that's I one of the voiceover, right? Yes. Yep. Yeah, yeah. that's one I know most, probably. And also has the happier ending where Rachel heads north, I believe. Yes. Which is right. just stock footage from The Shining. Which, interest- <laughs> interestingly enough, is uh, in some ways uh, works with Blade Runner 2049. It, it finds a way to keep both the final cut and the theatrical cut canon, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just was curious, uh, since we, we decided we were going to watch the final cut for the show, we hadn't really talked about that off air at all. And it was, I think it's important for our listeners to talk about the context of the film and again, why it's intimidating. Why, if you haven't gotten around to this, I, I get it. 
it's it's a big movie to watch once you decide I'm going to be into film. Blade Runner is kind of one that feels like a homework movie at this point, even if it is a genre film. Now, now before we get any further in review, Arthur, you said the reason for the selection was because of your mom's love. But I got to know, do you share your mom's love for this movie? I appreciate it. This isn't one I'd probably revisit a lot. I've seen it a couple of times now. Uh, There's a lot of things I I, I greatly appreciate about this movie. The the set design, the production design. This movie looks phenomenal. This is, what, 82? Uh, And this kind of 4K restoration that they do on the final cut on the standard def DVD still looks good, uh, which is surprising. Sometimes when you see something, you know, just on DVD now with Blu-ray and 4K, it's kind of definitely a step back. But this movie still looks great visually. Um and so I appreciate all that. I appreciate those nods back to the film noir and kind of mm-hmm. uh, that's that was my big thing. I think I kind of want to talk about here. I was, it's fascinating how well that film noir decision works as a sci-fi film, uh, and I think that's really interesting to kind of work out those kinks. Uh, Harrison Ford is great here. Um, it's a strong performance from him. That's one of his strongest. Honestly. Yeah, I I, I I agree. I think it's one of my favorites. Are you pro or anti voiceover? I haven't seen it, uh, but from everything I've read, it's it's a pretty bad voiceover. It's not good. I don't hate it, but I like the sort of like explanation because you know I'm I'm initially sort of generally offended by the phrase skin job, mm-hmm. but when he makes that comparison to using it and the N word in the voiceover, I think that's really really sort of like it opens up the sort of overall prejudice in that world. Uh, yes, but I'm a real yes but on that okay. because I think it stands without. Uh, I think. It does a good enough job suggesting on the periphery that that's the case without needing to be explicitly stated. Plus, hearing Harrison Ford say the N word is just well, gross. I don't love that. It's very jarring. But at the same time, like you know, I mean, it, yes, the, the it's future not, of 2019. This is the problem with the voiceover in its entirety, though. It only exists to explicitly state the subtext. Yeah, which is a bad voiceover, especially when sometimes you have a voiceover that's explaining a, a, something that happened like a scene or two ago. Uh, right, and it, that's I think part of the problem. The movie wasn't designed to have a voiceover, so shoehorning one after the fact really I think hurts the flow of the movie. A, a film that's already got kind of a weird flow to begin so with. So it doesn't give you that like Chandler esque kind of. Um, if it was better written, noir. if it was better written, it would. Okay. But Scott didn't write it. The the screen uh, writers didn't write it. The studio the producers, wrote it. yeah, yeah. And uh, say what you will about producers, they know how to you know figure out the world of making a movie sometimes but they're not creatives usually and when they are they know that get out of the way it should mm-hmm. be the way that they be creative so but yeah uh, eh, i don't like it but again that's why i watched the final cut yeah, yeah. fair enough and I, and I like that double entendre this is the final cut and that is the definitive edition but it's also that play on the director having a final cut uh, of having the final say on his own movie, which is a fun little uh, entendre there. Which that is they're different playing from with. the director's cut, but nonetheless, yeah. But uh, it's well, it's more fully realized, right? I mean, yeah. Well, he the, didn't have supervisory approval on the director's cut, which is a f- they called it. Which the is director's weird, right? Yeah. They called it the director's cut because it was the most in line with his vision at that point. But even he was like, "Well, it's not really a director's cut. I didn't have anything to I didn't do with say it. Anything. Yeah, you guys just asked me if I would like those choices. Uh, is my understanding of how that decision making went down. But uh, yeah, it's a weird one for that. I also appreciate the uh, kind of just uh, almost non-confrontational elements of this narrative in that, you know, Batty and uh, Deckard don't really meet until the final, what, 20 minutes or so, that final act. Right. Uh, where when they, they really meet, come to... Uh, Deckard gets his ass kicked. Yeah. Bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, just age wins, right? Yeah, yes. Time's undefeated. And machine um, also. But... Uh, More human than human. Yeah. 
He's a Superman. Yeah. Hugh Rob Zombie. Yeah. But uh, there's a lot of things I do like. To Dalton's point, I, I think it does kind of slow down. It's a very sleepy movie, as he mentioned. So you have to kind of be, I think, in the mood to watch this and be ready to strap in for it. But I still appreciate it. I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I think this is one, when I do revisit it, I kind of take more away from it and can enjoy it a little more. Uh, I, I compare it to First Reformed in that way. The first time I watched First Reformed, I was like, when is this going to end? What's going on? This is kind of dragging. But after watching First Reformed multiple times, I'm like, man, this movie's just going by. And that's kind of how I felt with Blade Runner this time. Um, so I, I'm definitely mostly pro on it. I don't, I'm probably not going to put it in my top 20 or 10 of all time or anything, but I definitely uh, respect it quite a bit, and uh, especially just the influence of this film, especially on video games. I don't know if you noticed this, but I thought a lot about the influence on video games here, this kind of idea of running the levels, meeting a mini boss, meeting a mini boss, boom, here's the final boss, and have that kind of a flow to it as well, which I appreciate. So I love me, yeah, I, I love me films that come from the days before video games really had a story structure and you can kind of see where the the nerds who fell in love with these early late 70s early 80s genre films that influenced their work in gaming i absolutely agree with you arthur i thought the same thing that there is this kind of like Mega Man structure to to what uh, deckard has to accomplish in the film is kind of interesting so hey dalton yeah do you like this movie i do uh, i'm with arthur that i appreciate and respect it more than i just like it uh, i think this might be the film i was telling arthur this off air uh, before we got started i think this is going to be the film that might cause me to stop assigning star grades when i uh log my viewing on letterboxd um I, i'm always going to use letterboxd it kind of helps me organize my viewing not only for my personal life but also for the show um but I, I almost always give a star grade unless i walk out of the film and go i gotta think about this more but with blade runner the intersection of how i appreciate it and how i like re respect it as a piece of filmmaking are kind of so intertwined um that it, it feels hard to give it a star grade. Because if I did, it'd probably be like three stars, three and a half stars. Um, but in terms of its influence, in terms of its just aesthetic, um, yeah, it's it's kind of a marvel to look at. And the marriage of science fiction and noir, uh, which is something that, you know, has always been there on the surface. And I think that's because film noir draws so heavily on German Expressionism, and German Expressionism kind of gave us science fiction and filmmaking as we Metropolis, understand it. Metropolis, right. Metropolis, exactly. Yeah. So the, the two are, have kind of always been inextricably linked. And I think Ridley Scott being kind of a film dork and being able to draw that line and make something new is really cool. This is a, a case, you know, way back in the day when we had Alexandra Bohannon on the show talk about aliens when she first joined us. She kind of said the same thing, right, about aliens being hard for her to appreciate uh, because she had uh, such a, a deep background in gaming and nerd culture. She has seen the things that aliens inspired, so it was less exciting for her to see. And I think Blade Runner, you know, if you get to be an adult and avoid Blade Runner but get into science fiction, it's not going to be as exciting for you because you've seen the things that Blade Runner influenced probably. Um, for me, this is only my second viewing from start to finish. I watched the director's cut before um, in high school. Uh, it's probably right before the final cut came out. Or maybe it was the final cut. It's not important. Um, but I've tried to watch the theatrical cut twice since then could never get through it. Uh, and I've tried to watch the final cut probably twice since then, too, and couldn't get through it. So this is only the second time I've ever watched Blade Runner start to finish. And I've been putting it off because I, I kept wondering how I was going to like it. In the world that's post-Blade Runner 2049, I was I, I was scared to uh, voice my opinion that I like the sequel better. And uh, that's been part of why I've put off watching it. But I, I feel comfortable now. Yeah, I like 2049 better. And I think a big part of that, the themes that Ridley Scott is so interested in exploring here... 
uh, about, you know, who's human, what makes us human, how do we define ourselves, our memories, and all that stuff. That gets used so much more interestingly in 2049 because it draws the next logical conclusion from those questions. The questions in Blade Runner are, how do we decide that we are real? 2049 says people will decide if you're real for you, and what do you do with that? People will try to make you a slave. People will try to... Uh, humanity will try to create disposable labor, and what do you do with that? Do you choose to be part of the liberation? Do you try to protect yourself? All of these like interesting questions about exploitation and liberation, I think, get really brought up interestingly in 2049 much more than they do here, because here it's just kind of, you know, they're newer questions, right? We hadn't thought a lot about AI in film yet. You know, we talked about it a lot in science fiction of the 50s and 60s. Uh, I mean, there's plenty of really great... How in 1968. Bingo. 2001. Yeah, yeah and there's... Pl- I can't think of the... Uh, Isaac Asimov obviously yeah. wrote a lot about androids. Um, I mean, obviously, this is based on... Philip K. Dick. Yeah, Philip K. Dick's Androids Dream of Electric Sleep. So there's plenty name of... Name drops Ray Bradbury. Exactly. So there's plenty of great science fiction about AI and artificial beings in the 50s and 60s. Uh, in literature, but in film we haven't gotten it yet. So I think Ridley Scott and his screenwriters are, are working on some some ideas that are interesting, but they don't really come to fruition until 2017 when we 2049 gets released. We've had more time to think about AI because it's closer now. It is impending, and we've had three more decades of film about AI and androids to talk about. So I, I just think all the ideas that are here we needed more time as a society to think about before we were really ready to talk about them. And I think Ridley Scott is scratching an itch that we need to get to. I just don't think society was ready for this film. I mean, obviously it didn't do great when it came out, but I just, again, culturally, I don't know that we were ready to have those conversations yet. Um, so that for me is part of what kind of holds me back on, on liking it. But again, I'm with Arthur. I respect the hell out of it. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. I like this movie a lot. I think um, I've seen the theatrical cut. I've seen the director's cut, and I've seen um, the final cut now. And they all sort of mix and meld together, and it's sort of hard for me to keep them all straight. And I think that's fine. I mean, that kind of is... At the I mean, end the of biggest the day, thing is the voiceover. I think yeah. that's the big change. The voiceover, the which is in the theatrical Correct. cut only. only. Correct. Yeah. And, and you know what? I don't, I don't hate it. It's all the same movie. You're right. And every time I watch the movie, I'm like, this is interesting. It is visually gorgeous. It is well acted. It is interesting conceptually, philosophically. Um, James Hong shows up for like five and a half minutes, oh, yeah, and he he's does. awesome. And, uh, but it, it, it's a great movie. I mean, I, just, I, I really, really just enjoy everything that it's doing. And everything that it's sort of wrestling with. And so, uh, for me, it's a lot of fun. Um, I do remember uh, my wife complaining about this movie. Um, so, imagine this. And this is this is something that I, as an educator, think of oftentimes. So, she took a uh, one of those, like, one-day-a-week, three-hour-long session courses yeah. for an English comp two maybe class. Mm-hmm. And, they made her, and they made her watch 2001, this film... And a third science fiction film that escapes my remembrance. Maybe Planet of the Apes, but I'm not sure that's correct. That'd be a good pick. And she remembers it being very, very late. Um, she remembers being on a basketball team and being very, very sleepy. Your wife's very tall. That makes sense that she was on a basketball team in yes. college. Yes. And so, yeah, yeah, she's a jock. I, I'm the nerd. Uh, anyway. Checks out. Yeah, no, this, yeah. Yeah, buddy. That makes I'm, a lot of yeah, sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah. I don't deny it. You know, I can relate to that. You, you, yeah, 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 yeah. Totally, yeah. totally. But anyway, um, she remembers sleeping a lot in this class and not loving and appreciating this. Now she has since watched 
Well, I think all three movies with me probably at this point. But um, she's since watched those movies and finds them to be interesting and beautiful and all those kind of things. But at the time, like very, very off-putting in that academic kind of setting. And I think there's a weird way in which syllabization – can I create a verb? Yes. Yeah. Or – Canonization? I would say canonization. I mean, if canonization is a word, I would say syllabization is a word. And the two are kind of hold hands with each other. And and sort of the um, top-down imposition of this film can make it very off-putting because it is slow. It is very staid in its pacing, right? But that being said, if you are – if you're into it, if you're interested in it, if you're like checking it out because your friend said it was cool or because you watched The Matrix and went, wait a minute, The Matrix is sort of based on some things that are going on in this thing, um, then that discovery is a lot more exciting and interesting. And so my experience with the movie was initially just that. It's like, oh, yeah. So as soon as that tree logo comes up from the Lad Corporation, which I don't even know what else they ever made, if anything, um, I feel like I've seen it in something else. Dear listener, go ahead and tell me what – because I'm sure I could Wikipedia, but I'm not going to do that. Um, research is just for posers. Um, so You do enough of that in your other – in your spare time anyway. Yeah, i got other things to think about right now. Um, so tell me what else the Lad Corporation does. But when I see that tree logo, like I'm in for the I'm, – I'm in for whatever. And I will see the other two um, you know, possible cuts at some point in my life, and I'll be okay with that because I think this movie's fun. I think it's interesting. I think it's exciting. I think it's, again, like I said, well-acted. Uh, Angela's uh, – man, can we just talk about the score? It's good. It's, it's very, very good. good. Yeah. Very this, good. This this jazzy, weird noir, but also very, very sort of um, what do I want to say? New wavy kind of like yeah. instrumental score. Mm-hmm. It's it got is, a lot going on. It's awesome. And so, yeah, I like this movie a lot. You're not the, this score is so well respected. I'll actually, we got a fun tidbit that connects this score and the score of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. I don't think I've talked about this on the show before, uh, but LP one half of Run the Jewels, who I know mm-hmm. I've talked about on the show before. Um, was such a big fan of Blade Runner as a child. It got him into helped get him into music production. Oh, he yeah. actually bought a lot of the same uh, the same synthesizer they used on this. And uh, when they were making 2049, when Johan Johansson was making the first bit of score for 2049 uh, before they scrapped it, and Hans Zimmer came in, um, LP actually collaborated with Johansson on uh, making a piece of score. Uh, that was a remix of some scoring from the first one, uh, which is really cool. That's that cool. It ended up getting used uh, for the, uh, the song that Run the Jewels made for the Venom movie, actually. They, re- awesome. they repurposed it, but it's really cool. It's a fun beat. But I think yeah. there's some of this on the uh, Mandy episode, dear listener, if you're wanting to check that out. I feel like that, Dustin, I think you're absolutely right. I think we did talk about this on Mandy. But I only bring it up to say, yeah, the score is a huge deal. I mean, not just among cinephiles, but I mean, it's a big w- deal in the world of music, too. Yeah. I mean, it's super influential. So, yeah, I... As a visual, like, just experience, and as a narrative, I dig it a lot. So I'm probably the warmest of the three of us on this particular film. But that's where I am. I think it checks more of your boxes. I mean, just uh, the yeah. noir stuff. Yeah. And the noir stuff, the sci-fi stuff, yeah. the religious stuff, yep. the, uh, the identity stuff, the, uh, the uh, again, very, very, very political sort of Marxist stuff that's going on as well. Well, and again, I think all those ideas, for me, get played with in a much more interesting fashion in 2049. And that's probably why I prefer it. I also feel like... And uh, I haven't seen 2049. For sure. And because it, it, I haven't seen the other, you know, 247. That's very 2047. cute. 2047. It's cute. Boo. It's cute what you did there. You're only the, the like, 500th person to make that joke, but... Uh, well, there's 2047 movies, right? Between that and Blade Runner 2049. Yeah, no, you don't have to explain the joke. We got it. You're such a dad. Arthur, keep booing him. One more. Boo. There we go. It's one more. Boo. Okay, I'm good. Okay, we good? Right. Yep. Are you saying boo or boo earns? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's you saying it, so I don't even know. So we're all pretty we're pretty pro on this movie, though. Yeah, we like it. And we brought up some really good points for analysis, I think, later in this show. Absolutely. The, the stuff we've hit on here. So now we've got to hold Dustin's hand to get through the rest of this episode. Yeah, because... So I, now... Because you, you said I, the parts I, that come next, but I, I'm afraid that I want to do something else. You want to play You've got old game. habits that are going to... Stop me. We've and, implanted these memories of what the genre cast is, but now we've got to reformat your hard like drive. It's total recall inside my head. Totally. Am I Quaid Ooh, or am I Hauser? Um, so at this point, we're actually going to what we are going to call expand the syllabus, and this is going to be kind of a extension of what we used to do with Elser instead, and we're going to have talk about the movies. But also going to supplant our gameplay. Yes. So we're, we're dropping the game. We're going to try and see what happens. So now we're going to talk about movies in this film's orbit that kind of tackle similar themes that we yeah. think should be studied alongside Blade Runner. You know, whether, you know, if, if we were kind of formatting, looking at this in a class type or academic setting, these are the movies that would pair well and kind of flesh out some more of these uh, tropes and themes a, a little bit better. So I think that's where we're going to hit here. We're going to kind of just yeah. open the table up and throw out some titles. So, so hey, Dalton. Yeah. You're teaching this course. Okay. And you're teaching this course in which you're teaching this film. Okay. And so you've assigned this film. I'm ready. But you're ready to lecture. Yeah. And so you're going to show clips from lecture? and or lecture. I'm ready. And or discuss. I've got it. What 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 those movies be? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit him. I'm gonna make him think I'm smarter than I am first. Okay, first. Well, yeah, you are. Of course, I got to start yeah. strong because you're teaching a class. So yeah, you've already done. I have that. to establish mental dominance over them so they understand not to uh, fuck with me uh, because I'm afraid of them. It doesn't work. Are you afraid of them? I would be afraid of my students. Yeah, when you teach these young these young adults, I'm just afraid they'll complain. Gotcha. Okay, well, you should tell them that you don't care if they complain. I don't actually. You don't tell them that he wait. doesn't care. Oh, you I don't, don't care. I don't actually care. I was like, what are they going to do to me? Yeah, exactly. They, they need me more than I need them. Bingo. Uh, so we're going to open up with The Lives of Others, uh, the German film about the Stasi. Uh, because I think they both, uh, the, the protagonist in The Lives of Others, there's a couple protagonists, honestly, but I think you can make the case that the uh, the crux of the narrative hangs on the Stasi agent in that film. And I, Unfortunately, the character and actor both escape me at the moment. Uh, I don't remember either. But I think the emotional journey of that film is the, is the Stasi agents, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, although I think Blade Runner itself also kind of has a similar uh, multiple protagonists thing going on, I think Roy Batty really is the protagonist, and Deckard is his antagonist more, even though the, more of the film follows Deckard. Uh, but, but Deckard's emotional journey is learning that he is... Uh, a mechanism of the state, and he doesn't want to be anymore. And I, I think the Stasi agent in that film has a similar journey. It's about learning you're the villain. I think an argument can be made that Rachel's a protagonist as well. Uh, I, you, absolutely. That was yeah. the other protagonist. Or any of the well, replicants, probably. And I, I, both of the romantic leads in the, uh, the lives of others, I would say, are the other two protagonists. Yeah. Whereas that's also the case here. Uh, the only difference being that the uh, the agent of the state is one of the romantic leads in Blade Runner, and Roy Batty, mm -hmm. who is fleeing from the state, doesn't... It is implied that all of the replicants kind of have a romantic relationship. It seems like Batty have, and Pris have a thing. It seems like they have a thing, but I honestly wouldn't be surprised to learn that they have like a big like uh, pansexual, communal, communal yeah. Like, yeah, poly thing. thing going on. It seems like Leon and Zora maybe a thing. Yeah, I don't know that well, Batty's very on. broken up about all of the losses. Exactly. So they're very tight knit. Group. I think that's part of it. The, the film shows how much love they have for each other, and the replicants seem to have. Uh, because they're born adults, seem to have uh, a very nuanced f 
view of sex, especially because so many of them are bred to be sex workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the press uh, in particular, Daryl Hannah's character, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even though yeah, Zora works as a dancer. I mean, she was built as a combat unit, right? Uh, but you're right, absolutely, uh, Pris. Uh, but again, I, I wouldn't be surprised to learn that they have the, the polyamorous relationship. And you're right. I, I think Rucker Howard does such a good job of expressing his his pain when they die that it, I wouldn't it would totally make sense to me but anyway I, I would say that's the first pick you get them thinking about protagonists in film noirs especially when they start on the side of the law and end up going on the lamb separate from the law which is a, a feature of both Blade Runner films um, but I, I think Lives of Others especially uh, the, the moment I really think of is after Deckard kills Zora right we get a lot of this shot uh, in reflections of class a lot of insinuation of Deckard seeing his own actions outside of himself, the world seeing Deckard's actions outside of his own narrative, and he starts to see that he is the bad guy in this. These people are, these replicants, he is starting to see their humanity and sees that they, they just want to be free. And uh, I think it's a great moment, and I think The Lives of Others is a, is a great touchstone to also think about similar ideas. An incredible film, too. I yeah, love that great movie. movie a lot. Um, do we want to keep going? Do we want to? Do you want me to give you some more of my yeah, selections? Yeah, uh, so let's, uh, let's do individual. So okay. your individual selections. So yeah. next up, I, I say, let's, uh, let's see Ridley Scott get a little older, a little wiser. Let's let him talk about androids and synthetic life uh, as an older man. And I say you watch Prometheus and Alien Covenant because I think those two films are more interesting. I think... David. I I think, yeah, Michael Fassbender's David is everything that uh, Ridley Scott's thinking about in Blade Runner, and it just took him 50 years to get... And again, obviously he didn't write either of those movies, but he had a huge hand in the narrative, especially Prometheus, I mean, kind of redrafted from scratch with David Lindelof. Um, but I think both of those films are Ridley Scott examining the relationship between humanity and the machines that humanity creates and our tendency to uh, other things that are uh, scare us, that we perceive as different from us. And again, making the through line connection that humanity will inevitably create synthetic artificial life and the question is how are we going to treat that life? Are we going right. to treat it uh, in, in, and again in Prometheus and uh, Alien Covenant. This this takes the form of uh, very much a mythological point of view. I mean, we're we're drawing the connection between gods and humanity, gods and mortals, and then mortals and their synthetic creations. Drawing that through line through mythology and science fiction, I think is really cool. Uh, and again, it's just Ridley Scott playing more with his ideas and allowing him. He he's at a point in his career where he can make a movie where the humans are the bad guys and the antagonist is the stealth good guy, which I think is really interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah and I, it, I mean, David is a very uh, hateful character in both of those films. I think uh, Alien Covenant, especially more than Prometheus. But but again, it's just Ridley Scott getting to play with these ideas as an older man, as somebody who's thought about them. I think a little bit more carefully and a little bit more considered and has realized. Um, that uh, the the indentured servants we create will always be the the good guys in that story, no matter uh, how evil they are, because they are trying to uh, find liberation for themselves. I think is very interesting. And again, it's just uh, an interesting gener- generation and genesis of a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, you're going to watch two different adaptations of Frankenstein. Really get you thinking about these ideas of uh, you know the modern Prometheus. 
You said two. Yeah, you're going to watch them both. You're going to watch the one from 39, because it's real good and pretty. And you're going to watch Kenneth Branagh's... 31. 31, thank you. I apologize. And you're also going to watch Kenneth Branagh's Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, which is... I thought you were going to say I Frankenstein, and I was going to hit you in the head with a microphone. You should watch I Frankenstein, though. You should, because it's fun. But but no, I'm going to make you watch the really weird Kenneth Branagh one with uh, Robert De Niro as the the creature. It's very not bad. It's very not bad, and it's very... uh, The most textually faithful to Mary mm-hmm. Shelley's text. Um, it's interesting. It's it's very 90s and very fun. And uh, I, I just, again, I, I, you got to start thinking about these ideas. We've been playing with the idea of mankind creating life separately from nature basically for as long as we've been doing science fiction. So yeah. uh, I, I think those are going to be really great ways to get the conversation started. Arthur, what about you, man? What do you, what do you say in the, for, for, the, for the chitlins? Yeah, so there are two kind of bits of Blade Runner that I, I, I kind of like to see scoped out. And there are two movies that I kind of came to uh, viewing this. And uh, the first is just that idea of what is identity, you know? And watching this mm-hmm. movie, you can't help but think, you know, man, what if I'm, I mean, what if this is all just a facade? You know, it's just hey, an implant and I'm just here for four years. You're not a replicant because you're not special. Right. Uh, oh. Wow. Damn. Just really. Yeah, cut his legs out from underneath him, huh? Yeah, and just suck the air out of the You're a person like the rest of us. But, I mean, the idea is there, right? I mean, it's a fascinating concept Absolutely. to deal with. And the movie I really thought about here, this idea of implanting memories and, you know, understanding your true self, I thought a lot about Duncan Jones' moon. Yeah. Right? Nice that whole, I mean, it feels very much like it could be set in the same world, right? Absolutely. Uh, Sam Rockwell's character in that film is just Not kind of, that other Duncan Jones movie. Yeah, we're not talking about that one. Well, and, and again, I think this is an important thing about Blade Runner is the choice to not make the replicants biomechanical in any way, right? To make them bioengineered, to make them all but human yeah. is an interesting choice. I mean, they're basically clones. They're yeah. just not made off a genetic template Correct. like they are in Moon. Correct. But I think, yeah, I think uh, the ethical questions about cloning in Moon are much, much closer to the, the questions being asked in Blade Runner than, you know, something uh, like The Matrix, uh, or let's say more specifically The Matrix sequels, yeah. which are talking yeah. about machines, like very mechanical beings. Yeah. Yeah, I think the question of uh, artificial you, humanity is a little bit more interesting. Yeah, and we see Rachel... Do you believe in karma? Karma's a word. <laughs> And we see Rachel kind of grappling with this initially once she kind of, when she finds out she's a replicant. Yeah. And she kind of grapples with this. But really the way Duncan Jones fleshes that out in Moon I think is fascinating as Rockwell's really, you know, he's self-destructing as as he's putting these pieces together and physically because he's at the end of his cycle essentially. Uh, But also just I think there's a mental breakdown as well as he's trying to grapple with I'm not who I thought I have been. I think your pick of Moon also makes the case that we really could use more of Rachel's internal struggle. I, I agree. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting story. We don't really, we get the couple of scenes where she runs out of the room and, you know, it's, we, we it's get 82 it. sci-fi. Well, and I think 2049, by allowing uh, Ryan Gosling's character to be a replicant, gets to have some of those ideas. She gets to play with yeah. those ideas a little bit. And the other, the with other. With f- a dude. With a dude, exactly. Nonetheless. Nonetheless. The other film I wanted to talk about is uh, is thinking about that scene where. Uh, Deckard goes to give the the Voight comp test to Rachel, mm-hmm. right? And this idea of Tyrell, the Grandmaster, sitting there watching his creation and just watching that chess game play out. I thought a lot of Ex Machina, of Garland's, course, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, sci-fi uh, kind of wonder work from a couple of years ago. Because yeah, Tyrell is instituting Oscar a Turing yeah. test right there. Yep, which is what Oscar Isaac does in, yeah. in Ex Machina. And so there's a lot of great parallels there, and that's another moment where. Uh, a movie just kind of takes a slice of Blade Runner and just fleshes it out to really explore it as far as it can there to see, you know, how far can we push this technology? How, f- you know, what does it take to actually 
you know, essentially trick the human eye and, and all of those pieces. And then just Vikander's, you know, Android personality grappling with her identity as well. They're much like Rachel does and much like, uh, Sam Rockwell does in Moon. Yeah. Ah, and God, Elisa Vikander turned such a great performance in that movie. Yeah. That should have been the film she got her Oscar for. I, I, I think right there, those are the two movies that really kind of expound on those themes here. I definitely have those influences of Blade Runner in them, both mm-hmm. of them, uh, and can really expound on those moments and some of those themes and, to kind of flesh this movie out and open that conversation up quite a bit. So that's where I would build my syllabus out. Dustin? Excellent, excellent. What so, about you? If I'm giving a lecture, it's probably a two-part lecture because i got to talk about two different movies mm-hmm. um, and use clips from both. And uh, probably in the first section, I think, um, I would talk about memory and this sort of uh, synthetic or what sometimes is called prosthetic memory that we use from digital media, social media, you know, pics where it didn't happen, and the obsession of... I the like r- the idea of calling the... Th- photographic memory a prosthetic memory that's really interesting yeah yeah i mean i, I think it is it's a way in which we remember without remembering yeah and we, we we create these mementos to aid us in memory and yet that memento itself is ephemeral and we fill in the gaps and the spaces in between and so i would open up with uh, a short experimental film hollis frampton's 1971 film parentheses nostalgia close parentheses um not to be confused with andre tarkovsky's nostalgia and um, Frampton's nostalgia is him narrating what a picture is while it sets on a hot plate. Eventually, the, the photograph itself catches fire, burns up, and then he narrates again. But he does not narrate the the picture that's on. He narrates the next picture. Interesting. Okay. And so you're looking at the picture as he narrates what happened before, and you can't remember what all that photograph held. And and so there's an experience as you watch the film, as you're watching this film, uh, this particular photograph being burned, as he talks about a different picture, and you're trying to hold in your brain what he said about the last picture. That makes me think of uh, the Jonas Mika short film we watched, uh, we discussed last week. A little um, bit. Oh, gosh, what was the name of that one? The one... That's mm, the one where that's uh, got a lot of like family short films and stuff, and there's some narration going on. Mm, um, it might have been a uh, song of Avignon. It is song of Avignon. Thank you. Okay, it sounds of, like that a little. But bit. that's what it, that's what it makes me think of is song of Avignon. But it, it, it's a it's a static camera, and again, and just a photograph on a hot plate, yeah. and eventually the photograph catches fire. That's really cool. and it disappears, right? And like like memory does. Yeah. And so this sort of obsession that these uh, replicants seem to have with the. Uh, um, maintaining and the possessing of photographs, Leon goes back to an apartment to try to get his f- photos back, and uh, the same thing with Rachel and her photographs, Deckard and his photographs. And in this film, he's clearly a replicant, um, less so in the theatrical cut. But we'll talk more about that in non, I'm sure. But that sort of uh, dis- discussion about how memory only happens with that augmentation, with that, with that again technological sort of apparatus alongside memory. And uh, what, is, what is it to remember? And what is it to remember in a culture without pictures to sort of go further back in time and have that sort of um, anthropological discussion? And then to have the very, very 21st century technological discussion about we live in a, a, an age in which pics or it didn't happen, right? 
And so does it happen if there aren't picks? And what can we think about in terms of what we remember versus what we can document? And the, the fact of the existence of the archive of those memories sort of further augments our understanding of what that's doing. And so Hollis Frampton's 1971 parentheses, nostalgia, no caps, close parentheses. Um, from 1971 is the first film I suggest. Then I want to move into those questions of identity. Who are you based on how you were born? Does your identity and your genetic makeup or engineering, in the case of Rachel, all of Deckard, all of some of the other characters in the film, what what makes you you? And uh, is your ambition, is your own sort of personal drive, that sort of ephemeral, dare I say, spiritual content um, compose who you are? And that's when you look at 1997's Ethan Hawke film Gattaca. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Great pick. Uh, as, a, as a discussion of the borrowed ladder. Ethan Hawke is, he is Jerome, but he absolutely is also um, carrying the ladder of this character, Vincent, who is, you know, genetically engineered. Ethan Hawke is a god birth or a faith birth or whatever, a non-engineered human being in this sort of future um, that he lives in alongside Uma Thurman and others. Well, and it, it even furthers the, the very fun, obviously I didn't, Mention 2049 as a part of the syllabus. I assumed at this point in the conversation, it's assumed. Uh, I think the sequel is integral to like really appreciating everything going on in the film. Because, again, I think those themes are brought out more. But uh, Gattaca really rounds that out well. Because there's a scene in 2049 where uh, Ryan Gosling's character, Kay, is uh, hanging out with his uh, holographic girlfriend, Joy. And she, they're looking at DNA records, and she points out uh, four characters for you, two for me, basically. Like, pointing out, like, this is it. You're not that special, but you are. Like, yeah. talking about the uh, the specialness versus non-specialness of DNA to, to binary code is a very interesting conversation that gets had in 2049. And again, I think, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Gattaca, because I think it, it does bring up those questions of... How much more special are we than anything we created? Probably right. not. Right, and and that and the, the, again, the sort of like the uh, the X factor, the sort of again the ephemeral, the the non tactile aspect. The reason why Jerome doesn't go through Gattaca is because he doesn't care to. And then eventually he's injured and he's paralyzed, and that's sort of part of the narrative of that film. And the reason why Vincent makes it to Gattaca and makes it through the entire program and gets there is, yes, indeed, he steals part of this identity from this other person. But it's also because of who he is. He's the one who gets himself on the spaceship yeah. and gets to tour Titan. And so it is that, again, uh, sort of, again – non-material aspect that makes it happen as well and so that wrestling with who you are and what your identity is are you simply a material being you know are, are we spiritual beings having material experience or are we material beings who occasionally experience spirituality and it refuses to pick a side and i think that's an interesting part of that conversation as well that materiality versus non-materiality spiritual metaphysics and all that good stuff that um, ties in with that so that's how i would expand the syllabus if it were me very good very good uh, the only thing that uh, I, I've thought of as we were talking that didn't come up was just a piece of non-film expanded reading. Uh, I would recommend the podcast Here We Are, uh, hosted by comedian Shane Moss. It's uh, not a comedy podcast, it's a science podcast, but a lot of great episodes, I would say, over the last Nothing's six Nothing's quite so, so funny as science. Look, it is very funny. Uh, but a lot of great episodes over the last six months about the future of AI and uh, the 
outdating of a human workforce. Uh, really, really interesting episodes about where AI is and where it's going. Uh, just go go through uh, the archives on Here We Are and uh, find yourself some uh, some interesting AI talk to think about science a little bit. And just because they like the sort of materiality, physicality of birth, do they not like souls as well? That's where we're getting. So, it's important to ask ourselves these questions now so we've thought about them. Fascinating. Well, I guess it's time to get down to business, gang. Yes. And we're back bringing you that spicy, spicy analysis. Now, Dalton, yes. um, I want to go to you first. Okay. Because I know that um, I typically sometimes put on a clerical collar for this show. You do. For reasons. Yeah. Um, but you want to put one on. Weirdly, yeah. And you want to do so in dialogue with 2049. I do. Which, again, having not seen the other, you know, 2047, I don't know anything Boo. about Boo. bitch, this I, guy. I gotta catch up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm 2047 movies away. I'm quitting. I'm so mad right now. <laughs> I'm quitting. I'm furious. <laughs> this is it. This is the last episode. I, yeah, after a year and a half of him doing bits about uh, quitting the show, we revamp it, and he forces us off. Who would have guessed? I uh, know it's going to be just me by myself. Oh uh, gosh, that would hey, everyone would hate that. Well, it'd be the Borgo cast, and everybody hates that. <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> I have guests on that show. Sometimes. Yeah, you do sometimes. So yeah, I, I, you were right though, Dustin. I do want to. I do want to talk a little bit about some some things that happened in the sequel and with. Dialogue with liberation theology, yes. Uh, yeah, a little bit. So, Tell me more, tell me more. Uh, spoilers for Blade Runner 2049 inbound, I guess. If uh, See our disclaimer at the start of the show about spoilers. Uh, but I, I think Blade Runner begs a lot of questions about uh, the nature of indentured servitude and slavery uh, that it just doesn't ever really get to. Um, it's not the movie they're making, right? They're making a movie about uh, personhood and identity, Um and and mystery, um, they they hint at ideas. They 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 hint at uh, is Roy Batty a real man, right? And uh, and is Zora a real woman? And is Pris a real woman? And is Leon a real man? Um, I, I I would say that they don't really get very far in Blade Runner. Just there's there's too many other things going on. But what twenty forty nine has going for it is making its protagonist a replicant. Uh, I think. Anytime in science fiction you are asking questions about oppression, um, you are painting yourself into a corner a little bit because we live in a world that uh, both has oppression and historically uh, those uh, the, the roots of that oppression are generally um, class and racially based. Uh, and when you create a science fiction world, whether it's you know, Blade Runner or let's go ahead and say Bright, which is like a fantasy science fiction world, Anytime you introduce an analogy for oppression and racism and classism, you're skating on thin ice a little bit because uh, you were asking the viewer to consider a world uh, that also asks them to ignore the real world's problems. Uh, but I think anytime you do that, you are trying to get your audience to consider a problem in the real world minus the baggage they might have going in. You can't convince a racist to not be racist by showing them a movie about racism. That's how you end up with Green Book. You can convince a racist to not be racist by showing them a movie about androids when the androids are white. And that is the only... I'm, I think sometimes that is the only way to get at people who don't want to think about these questions about 
who deserves freedom and liberty and equality. Uh, and I think 2049 does a really good job of asking those questions by, number one, making its protagonist a replicant, but by, number two, having him be in a committed uh, monogamous relationship with his, his Siri, for all intents and purposes. And I, I just think it gets at these questions a really interesting way uh, by also letting the protagonist of that movie not be the chosen one. I, I think science fiction especially, I mean, we've talked about The Matrix a little bit this episode, I, I think it's a genre, especially cyberpunk uh, science fiction is a genre full of chosen ones, right? Of ones who are meant to help save things. Uh, and Ryan Gosling spends a good chunk of the movie 2049 thinking that that's him, only to find out that uh, he's the decoy. He has been the decoy this whole time, and uh, it has become his job not to be the chosen one that shows humanity that replicants are not that different from them. Uh, it is his job to help keep safe and secret uh the the replicant that is born of a natural birth um so 2049 which is a pretty huge development exactly 2049 really makes these questions explicit about when we strive to make our artificial servants more like us aren't we just making people uh because blade runner has all these questions about if your memories aren't real how can you trust them 2049 takes that off the equation and says the replicants in this world have memories to make them act more human and they know that their memories are not real they know that they are constructs and yet they start to develop uh their own opinions and ethics and codes separately from their programming uh there's quite a few scenes uh discussing do you think we really never lie uh the the idea of do you think we're really doing everything you want us to do exactly the way you want us to do it all the time, because that's a pretty dumbass thing for you to think. Um, and again, letting uh, Kay's antagonist also be a replicant, uh, who in, ooh, God, I don't know any other language to talk about this, uh, but the character Love being the the Uncle Tom replicant, for lack of a better way to put it, who acts as this hitman uh, to uh, the uh, Jared Leto character, who uh, his character Dustin is uh, called Wallace. He's kind of the Tyrell figure in that film. But whereas Tyrell in the first movie seems to be like stoking rebellion in his replicants, uh, Wallace actively accepts his role as like creating uh, the new slave economy. He wants to make replicants that can self-reproduce so he can make more money and Gross. help further space colonization. Well, it's an interesting character, right? It's a character uh, in the backstory of the sequel that uh, saved humanity by creating uh, growable protein grubs after the uh, the. Uh, ecosystem collapsed so it's a morally dicier film i think it's it's a film that takes all the questions alluded to in the periphery of blade runner about the environment and about sustaining labor in a increasingly automated workforce and takes those questions and makes them very real and very human and i think a big part of that is allowing the protagonist to be part of the underclass which yes deckard is hinted at being a replicant in this film uh, it's not confirmed in 2049 one way or the other in a way that I think is very satisfying. Yeah. Um, but I think not explicitly stating him to be a replicant removes some really interesting questions from the table. Mm -hmm. And I, I think 2049 makes those a lot more clear. Uh, and again, as we would discussed off mic, Dustin, yeah, stating the subtext explicitly is often less interesting. But when you state the subtext, then you get to have a new subtext. Uh, and the subtext becomes something much, much different. And, uh, yeah, we don't need to get too into 2049 because there's a whole lot more we could say about it. But uh, I think all of the interesting questions of liberation that uh, Blade Runner introduces, they get uh, the, the blanks filled in a little bit more in 2049. I think there's a little bit more meat on the bone 
as All it were. Right. So, right. That's what I had to say. Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, Arthur, you had some things that you definitely wanted to share about um, Blade Runner in terms of analysis, right? And uh, I believe as he digs out his phone, I'm making up for time because I forgot. What yeah, you're doing were. a little bit of a soft shoe, but uh, he's got to get his notes out. Well, it's really just about those two points. The the primarily just that idea of you know structuring this as a noir film in a in a sci-fi world. Oh, I the think genre is, thing, yeah, right. Yeah, just you know, we've kind of talked about genre. We've never really talked about genre mashups and why they work or don't work. You know, it's a game we've played several times with like Brick or you know some other movies where you take the two the two genres and you make a new thing with them. And I think that's I mean, No Country for Old Men is a good example yeah. of a country western sort of noir. Yeah. Um, so I'm just interested to see, you know, why you know you've you've kind of linked it back to the the dawn of cinema with the, the Metropolis and uh, German expressionism. But what is it about this dynamic that works so well that that you know? There's something very 40s and 50s about this movie, not just the narrative, but also in the production design, in the character uh, mannerisms and the way people interact. It feels very old fashioned. And as you mentioned, he's got that very Sam Spade quality. Of, and he even does the, the Sam Spade bit from Maltese Falcon, mm-hmm. um, right? Where he puts on like a little lisp in a faux voice like Sam Spade does when he goes to a bookstore. The same thing um, Deckard does when he goes and, and says he tries to get it in with Zora, Zora. right? I'm from the, the was it the decency league? The de- something the, like that. The league yeah. of decency. Yeah, yeah. and so, it, it's, it's very so funny. funny. And, and here's my question: Is noir and sort of like the resurgence of noirish um, stuff as we wrestle with it? Is it not part of the sort of postmodern condition where we just we we want it to be mysterious because we have no bloody idea what we're doing? And we have no bloody idea who we are or what's going on with us. And so we like a story that is shrouded in mystery. And this can be found in the noirishness of, say, a Mulholland Drive or the noirishness of Brick as we're trying to find identity in high school. Or uh, the noirishness of uh, No Country for Old Men, I think, is a good example, where suddenly you find yourself in the middle of a situation you just don't know how to negotiate anymore. And is it just sort of um, that, that, that postmodern... What's the word I'm looking for? Um, just paral- paralysis. Of the genres or styles, especially of the 30s and 40s, uh, it, it's definitely, I think, always been the more adult, right? It's the one that's asking those it's big questions, yeah. right? It's very kind of existential in nature and asking big questions about relationships or you know government or state agencies and things of that nature. It's a very uh, grapply uh, in its construct. And I think that is part of the intrigue is that applying that element to a story almost automatically allows you to start grappling with something on a more mature level. Um, this is very much a procedural film. And that was kind of the other thing about it that I'm very fascinated with is just kind of the very streamlined narrative of Dagger's just trying to figure out what's going on, right? There's well, no he's just major... trying to find the, the, the four replicants he has yeah. to kill, right? I mean, it's not die hard. There's not this major conflict back and forth. The replicants are doing their thing, and Deckard's just tracking him down because that's a, he's a hired gun, essentially, at this point. He's a mercenary for the state. And so there's nothing too complex about that narrative on on its own. But when you add in the idea of bringing in the noir, which as a genre or style, which is, I think, the other debate about noir. Yeah, right? that's a very interesting debate, yeah. Um, especially, I think, in this movie, um, is that automatically we get to start grappling with some bigger questions just by adding that to it, by bringing these darker 
room is by bringing in these kind of expressionist styles um, that it gives it a more mature edge kind of it, it it's like it gives it some sort of cred, cred. It gives it like a street cred almost out of the box. Well, I, I think if it's just a guy trying to find killer robots, right, it becomes just a very, very laughable 80s action film, right? And there is a certain maturity that, that automatically is implied by the sort of – I mean there's there's the intertextuality, the metatextuality mm-hmm. of um, you know using film noir as a reference. But yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I think it grows it up like – instantly like a replicant out of a pod right <laughs> yeah very well stated yeah i i i don't know i struggle because i feel like in blade runner the noir elements almost feel like an affectation uh and again i i, I hate to keep comparing blade runner to, to blade runner 2049 but <laughs> the reason i do right if we were doing an episode about blade runner 2049 we yeah. would keep referencing the original blade runner and yeah. I, I think in a world where 2049 exists you can't just talk about blade runner on its own anymore uh because they had similar histories right even though blade runner 2049 made almost 300 million dollars at the box office somebody decided it would be a good idea to let blade runner 2049 have like a 180 million dollar budget which it was never going to make back. It's a sequel to a movie that nobody saw in theaters. Right. Which is it's yeah. just an insane I thing I mean, it's to also do. a huge cult classic. It did make a lot of money back, though, right? I don't think so. It did okay. I mean, again, it's made a lot of its it, money on DVD printings. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. I, and I think a lot of people who have bought the, the DVD and the Blu-ray and just continue to buy it on other formats convince studios that they can make $500 million on 2049. That's weird. Uh, I'm surprised it made 300 million. Honestly, that yeah. that alone is pretty surprising to me. But uh, in 2049, I, I feel like the we, we've gotten better at synthesizing the noir elements of like a cyberpunk story, um, just through you know 30 years of telling cyberpunk stories. I mean, Blade Runner kind of creates the aesthetic of it visually. Hey, I mean, let, don't be me wrong. There's give give a quick primer. What's cyberpunk? So cyberpunk is. Uh, a genre of science fiction that kind of starts in the 80s with novels like Snow Crash and Neuromancer, uh, but again, I think aesthetically really becomes and in, comes into its own with Blade Runner in 1981, or 1982 rather, uh, but also with a lot of uh, 80s anime like Akira, stuff happening in Japan like that. Ghost in the Shell. Ghost in the Shell for sure in 95, uh, and then obviously uh, in the West kind of comes into its own with The Matrix in 99. But I, I think you can look at this this aesthetic that runs in the West from eight, you know from Blade Runner to The Matrix, and then in, in Japan has kind of a longer, more storied history. But it, it is a fusion of that, and again, that, this kind of gives us a good place to talk about uh, the orientalism of the future that's going on in both mm-hmm. Blade Runner movies. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, but again, cyberpunk is just kind of honestly sci-fi noir. It is learning yeah. that those aesthetics don't have to be name-checked separately. It's that they are a similar aesthetic that can be its own thing. And I think in 1982, we don't know that yet. So we're still playing in two sandboxes instead of realizing they can be the same sandbox. Does that make sense? It does. Um, if I was going to name it aesthetically, uh, cyberpunk is green-tinted, mm-hmm. chiaroscuro with neon. Uh, I, I would argue the green-tinted thing. I think it can kind of be... Color-wise, you can do whatever you want, but the neon is especially important. I, I would say it's uh, it, it's 40s noir that trades uh, its its smoke for its neon, uh, mm-hmm. although the smoke's there too sometimes. Yeah. It trades black and white for neon, I, I guess would actually be a more accurate way to put it. Um, and again, that, that's a little bit, that's part of it too, right? Blade Runner has kind of a washed-out color palette, whereas 2049 has 
a color palette that actively assaults your eyeballs uh, in, a, in a really kind of incredible way. Not, not that, you know, Blade Runner uh, 82 doesn't have some really wonderful uh, neon uh, ads going on. It's just a different thing. I guess the color of technology is green, and that's what I mean by green tent. I feel tented. I could. Yeah. yeah. But again, just to name Cyberpunk, I think that's a good place to start uh, what you and I have said about it. Uh, but again, I think I don't think you could call the original Blade Runner cyberpunk. I think you can definitely call twenty forty nine cyberpunk. And, and the punkness of it is um, the spikiness. It's the spikiness, but it's also the anti authoritarianism. Yes, right? correct. It's the refusal, that's the also punk. Yeah, yeah. The the refusal uh, stories about bucking Hackers, against a system. Yeah, et cetera. people who exist on the outside of society or find themselves on the outside of society. Right. Uh, Blade Runner is definitely proto-cyberpunk, to be sure, though. I don't think we have cyberpunk as we know it without uh, Blade Runner. I mean, it, No doubt. It's, it is the thing. Uh, and again, it's just as we've said earlier in the show, sometimes the further you get out from the thing that starts a thing, it starts to look less impressive, and that's okay. It's not a bad thing. It's just kind of a feature of art. We shouldn't be slavishly devoted to... Uh, canons because that keeps us from creating new things. Right, absolutely. Uh, so well, the thing I want to talk about, I was want to talk about an essay, okay. um, kind of a big deal essay, kind of an essay that uh, you will have read in school in certain English composition classes, probably, um, or in intro to philosophy classes. It um, may be in some political theory stuff, and if you've done any upper level sort of English or humanities, liberal arts kind of stuff, it's going to be a thing that comes up. And it's um, Deborah How Deborah Donna How Howerways um, Cyborg Manifesto. And um, this feels like a good uh, nexus of all the things we've been talking about so far. It is, and I I'm going to read a couple quick quotes from it because Howerways making an interesting sort of political and aesthetic point about the sort of metaphysics of the moment we live in, in which you, I mean, Rachel is a replicant, doesn't know she's a replicant, and is you know negotiating that kind of identity. Um, Deckard, depending on which version of the film you're watching, is replicant, maybe isn't a replicant, you know. And then we've got Edward James Olmos, who is also possibly a replicant in some versions of, I think, the uh, extra-canonical or non-canonical um, animated features and comic book slash video game stuff. Is that not a thing? Not as far as I'm aware. 2049 seems to pretty explicitly state he's not a replicant because okay. he's in a retirement home in that film. All right, whatever. Um, that That's fine. But that's an interesting... I, I like that idea. Yeah, I mean, you know, you just don't know who's who, what's what. Um, and, of course, he's um, Mexican-American. Uh, we're dealing with the sort of Japanese-Americans, um, uh, Chinese-Americans. Uh, we're just Chinese immigrants with the case of James Hong's character, it seems. And uh, where do you find uh, a place of interface... In terms of working liberatorily, um, the point that you were making earlier, um, in terms of like throwing off the shackles of the system that's all about exploitation. So clearly the replicants are being very, very exploited, um, but Deckard, human, not human, is clearly being very exploited as well. Um, there are exploited workers, sex workers, and all kinds of human beings, and also just the various toys created by Ooh, what's the character's name or the actor? J.F. Fitzgerald? Yes. Sebastian. Sebastian. J.F. Sebastian. Um, so the, Love that character actor. Cannot think of his name, though. No, it's not coming to me either. And yeah, he's, his, he's great. Yeah, really interesting stuff with the idea of this menagerie of genetically engineered toys that he and has. And so there, there are like all these sort of levels of exploitation that are at work, and Haraway is wrestling with this question of, I'm a white, heterosexual, um, 
middle class, you know, upper middle class kind of woman. And I want to fight for liberation. And my experience is not the same as, you know, say an African-American woman or a Latinx woman. And so what am I doing? How am I how am I going to do this sort of stuff? And can like, a, a, you know, an African-American man and a Latino homosexual and, you know, all these sort of various sundry experiences, how can we avoid essentializing all these various kinds of exploitation and find some way forward outside the binaries of metaphysics? Yeah, right? how, do you, how do you talk about these different matrices of oppression that exist in society without turning it into who's got it worse Olympics? Right? Exactly, yeah, exactly. And so Rachel needs liberation. that's a fucking dangerous and naughty thing to navigate, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, Rachel needs liberation, but Decker needs liberation. Uh, Edward Jane almost needs needs to get past his sort of false consciousness towards liberation, right? There's there's all this sort of stuff going on all over this film. I think Gaff is really interesting, though. I think Gaff knows. I, th I think Gaff is choosing to work within the state to yeah. undermine it. And and then so, you know, there are bad guys and good guys, obviously. There are those who are on the side of, 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 of some sort of liberation well, and those well, like who are not. Tyrell, let's come back to Tyrell. I think, again, he is not. As I've I think he is. I think he wants the replicants to free themselves. I think uh, he views maybe. himself that way. I wouldn't say that he is, I would say he views himself that way. Okay, I, I think the essay would not paint him in that light, but I think I don't think it, essay. Would I think either. I think the text might yeah. of the film. So I think that's a fair point. I want to read a couple quick yeah, quotes, please do, because it's a great essay. And again, and this it, is one more time for our listeners. This they... is the Cyborg Manifesto okay. by Donna Haraway. All right, hit us with some of them juicy, juicy quotes. All right, so first of all, the cyborg is a matter of fiction and lived experience that changes what counts as, in her case, woman's experience in the 20th century. This is a struggle over life and death, but the boundary between science fiction and social reality is an optical illusion. Mm. Interesting. So here we go. Uh, another quote. Unlike the hopes of Frankenstein's monster, the cyborg does not expect its father to save it through a restoration of the garden, that is, through a fabrication of a heterosexual mate, uh, through its completion in a finished whole, a city, and a cosmos. The cyborg does not dream of a community on the model of the organic family, this time without the, uh, the, excuse me, the Oedipal project. The cyborg would not recognize the Garden of Eden. It is made of mud and cannot dream of returning to dust. Lastly, when did Donna write this? Ooh, good question. She should definitely see 2049 and Alien Covenant. Uh, she is on the button with a lot of Mid this theory. Mid-90s, I want to say. Mid-90s? God, she is on the button, dude. She's nailing it. Yeah, she's yeah, yeah, killing yeah, yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, so my cyborg myth is about transgressed boundaries, potent fusions, and dangerous possibilities. And lastly, I have one other statement I wanted to read, I thought. Uh, mayhap I'm not going to find it, and I don't think I care to. Uh, that's all right. Um, These things happen. Nonetheless, um, this idea that um, those metaphysical boundaries. So, yes, your womanness. Yes, your blue-collarness. Yes, your... Um, status as a person, you know, whatever sort of form of exploitation that you may have endured, or that you just sort of are, are, are awoke, awakened to and aware of, that all of those create um, what he what she calls communities not of experience or essence, but communities of affinity. That we all care about the same kinds of things, and so what Blade Runner does is it confuses 
who's quote unquote real. I mean, there's all these discussions. Is that owl real or is it artificial? Is a snake real or is it artificial? Is Rachel real or is she artificial? Well, we're getting to the, I, I think, my one of my very favorite moments in Blade Runner 2049, which I think fleshes this question out really the well. Joy character? Not the Joy character, actually. It's the, There's a dog. Uh, that Harrison Ford lives with in Las, in Las Vegas. Uh, so when when uh, Ryan Gosling finally finds Deckard, literally like three-fourths of the way through the movie, uh, he has a dog with me, asks if the dog's real, and Harrison Ford says, I don't know, why don't you ask him? And I think Dude. that is getting to the crux of what Blade Runner wrestles with and fails to find an interesting answer to. And I think 2049 has the answer from the start of the movie. And so what, yeah, and I think what Haraway is arguing for is a, a community of affinity that yeah. we choose together to care about these things, not families of birth, not affinities of, again, a set essence in terms of familial, patriarchal, national, um, whatever sort of legal strictures that might create our nexus of or matrix of relationships, but rather that we choose to care about the things that are about this sort of Marxist freedom fighting kind of stuff. And she says – and later on in the essay she talks about what we need to do is create a union between witches and homosexuals and Christians and Leninists that they together would fight for the same kinds of things. And yes, all of that, so it. much yes. Well, th this idea of we need to come together to uh... – form a family committed to liberation i think does bring us to uh what we were just talking about uh before uh, you, you brought us this to the table is the uh the orientization of the future uh which i think is a fun thing to talk about uh well it's a bummer to talk about but uh we're, th this isn't so much what's in the text of the film right so much as what's in the text of the production though i want to go ahead and read the quote oh did you find that did yeah. you find it? Okay. it it's committed to building a political form that actually manages to hold together witches engineers elders perverts christians mothers and leninists long enough to disarm the state fission impossible is the name of the affinity group in my town how metal is that yeah, yeah. that's good uh well let's go ahead and talk about that right okay uh because if if we're going to do it anywhere it's going to be in the world of art and it's a damn shame when we have these big uh we're going to allow art to be made within the confines of corporate finance uh, we should probably try to do things that are subversive within that context. And what's not subversive is filling your screen with a world that is pan-ethnic and pan-linguistic and mostly having white people do all the talking. Mm -hmm. And that is a problem. You've already mentioned Edward James almost, and uh, I called him Edward James almost. Edward James almost, and yeah. uh, Edward James almost and won an Oscar and, uh, for Stand and Deliver. Yeah, should have got it. Should have got it. <laughs> should have got an Emmy for Battlestar is what he should have got. Yeah, he should have. Uh, he almost got that too. Him. Him and uh, man, him and oh my god, what is the name of the actress that plays a president on that show? Two of them kept that show going. Is my point? Oh, the the president from uh, oh, she's the president's wife from uh, Independence Day. Yeah, I know you're talking yeah. about. Oh. I can't think of that actress's name. She's you know, great. The two of them are great together in that show. But neither here. And then uh, oh my god, the Chinese American actor that's so good, James Hong. James Hong. Uh, they are the only actors of color in this film. Uh, in uh, Blade Runner twenty forty nine, we've got uh, the actress who plays Joy is a uh, Cuban American. Uh, actually, she might just be Cuban. And then uh, we've got Abu Fudge. I can't. I don't have his name written down in front of me. Did you just say Fudge? Yeah, I did say Fudge. I'm trying to swear less. That's uh, cute. Thanks. Uh, it's the, <laughs> I'm the I'm the Captain Now guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. he's briefly in Blade Runner 2049. But all this adds up to um, the same question we were talking about earlier with uh, 
fictional oppression in the face of real-world oppression. Uh, and the need for voices, uh, stories about liberation, but those stories need to involve people who actually need liberation in the real world, probably. Right. And, and not to get so hung up on the individual sort of, again, stories of liberation in an essential way that Edward James almost might experience as opposed to uh, the Cuban-American who's playing Joy, yes. question mark, yes. in 2049, um, because I haven't seen the movie. Uh, and again, they definitely need liberation but their liberation is also the same story that james hong experiences and indeed deckard as a white heterosexual male also is oppressed by the capitalist system and just because his oppression is of a different degree or a different magnitude for sure than experienced by somebody else it doesn't mean he has nothing to say and cannot contribute in any way to the affinity group of course uh, but i get it that this is where we start talking about the text of a film versus the text of the production in an yes. interesting way right yeah yeah and the way we cast hollywood films the way that we fill our screen primarily with white faces when uh, films made for uh, Hollywood production and consumption. It, it just, it makes these ideas of revolutionary commerce a lot disappointing. I, what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, harder to realize, I guess. Uh, it, it just shows you how much further we have to go when our idea of the future is a future that, erases a lot of these things that divide us currently um but it shows how much work we have to do when you can't even get the faces on screen whose languages you're depicting uh we arthur and i were talking to 2049's got a lot of uh, uh either sanskrit or urdu i you know look, i'm not a linguist i can't spot them off the top of my head but there's oh, script there's script on the screen in the film for you know just signs and stuff much like we get in blade runner we get a lot of uh, i think there's a lot of uh, chinese script a lot of japanese script uh, in the world, but again, not a lot of Asian faces uh, in that film. A lot, not a lot, no South Asian faces that I can remember in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which is crazy because the Japanese have taken over the world in this sort of um, you know meta universe. Well, right? and again, in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, we have a world of a complete ecological collapse. Presumably, the already heavy immigrant population of Los Angeles is now also filled with refugees from all over the world. I guess so. Again, it, it just begs the question. And again, the, the Blade Runner films we're not picking on them. Lots of science fiction does this. Uh, Serenity and Firefly, things that I, I love a lot, exist in a world where there has been like an Anglo-Sino alliance, and yet there are not a lot of uh, Chinese faces in, mm -hmm. in the world of uh, Joss Whedon's Firefly. And where did the African Americans go, except for marrying the one white dude? Yeah, it's it, again, it, it just uh, th these are and just these are Africans. these are decisions that are you know we're not blaming directors or casting directors. They work in the business they work in, but you know, much like uh, Gaff and Deckard, they have to ask themselves some essential questions about the w work that they do within that system, and how are they going to be part of the solution of elevating uh, voices that are not being elevated? Uh, because, as Dustin has pointed out, just because uh, an artist is uh, white or male or cis or hetero, I mean, obviously that does not uh, exclude you from the conversation of liberation. But it definitely should make you think about how you're participating and mm -hmm. who's being elevated uh, and how we're building coalitions. Just something to think about uh, yeah. when, when you watch a science fiction film and you see a lot of really cool uh, Asian-influenced production design, uh, just ask yourself questions about uh, where are those faces uh, that should be represented on screen. I guess it's just a last sort of end note to my own academic career. I once wrote an essay about coalition building regarding The Walking Dead with a dialogue with Dante's Inferno. Sexy. And I really wish I'd read this essay more closely 
for that because I think Haraway's making almost exactly the same point with, within science fiction that I was trying to make within horror. Damn. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Very, very good stuff. And I wish I'd referenced it because she's brill and she's crushing it. Uh, I feel like we've uh, we've done our wrestling with Blade Runner. Do we want to talk about Roy Batty and mortality to to take us on home? That's really the only thing I want to talk about. We haven't touched on. You I guys mean, the got mortality anything? slash divine theological thing that's going on there with it, right? And so there's like a misquote of Milton, you know, where the angels um, ascended with flames in Milton, but they descend with flames, and so Batty's character becomes something of a fallen angel yeah. kind of character, which is interesting. And then, of course, his sort of crucifixion with a nail in his hand. Right, and then the dove of his spirit ascending into heaven. Yep. And again, the question is, if you create something with consciousness, then it has a soul, whether or not it's you know mortally born or ordinarily born or normally, which I don't like as a word, born. Yeah, it, I, I like the idea that Roy Batty doesn't want to kill Deckard, no. which I find very interesting. He's going to make him fight him. Uh, as soon as you stop fighting me, I'm going to kill you. This is a, a, a race to see if you can stay lo- alive longer than I can. But uh, I like the idea that Roy Batty just needs somebody to make a point to in his final hours. He has accepted that he's not going to expand his, his lifespan. You know, he, he knows that he's going to die. Yeah. He just desperately needs somebody to listen to him. Uh, and I, it's fun to know that uh, Rucker Hauer improvised a pretty good... Uh, uh, chunk of that di- dialogue. Interesting. Yeah, so a lot of it was written already, but he kind of cobbled it together in the version he liked the best, and then the Tears in the Rain, uh, that's all him. Mm. That's all Rucker Howard, baby. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's very good. Rucker Howard is an undersung, underappreciated yes. actor. Yes. No, didn't have the career he deserved. No. Uh, I would say uh, Dolph Lundgren's the same way. Dolph Lundgren yeah. didn't ever get the career he deserved. They were both extremely handsome and extremely European, and I think that stopped them from getting interesting roles. It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. It's hard to make it in Hollywood if English isn't your first language. Yeah, it yeah. really is. True facts. Uh, and your name's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Arnold Braunschweiger. Well, also neither of them look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Mm-hmm. Lundgren a little bit, but Lundgren. A little, who's more handsome, Arnold or Lundgren? Mm. Let's go peak, like mid to late eighties. I, I still pick Arnie. His his pecs are just so beautiful. <laughs> I, I, they're so powerful. I, w- I want to caress them. Yeah. Oh, so T-800, powerful. Arnie. Yeah. Wow. I mean, come yeah. on. 91, Arnie. Yeah. 89, uh, Lundgren's good. iron, Arnie. You know what? Lundgren's, Lundgren's got uh, a fighter's body. Yeah. Yes. And uh, Arnie's got a, uh, a power lifter's body. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, this has been uh, Beefcakes, uh, the segment the, <laughs> the segment within the show where Dalton talks about the, the handsomest boys in cinema. <laughs> Thank you for playing. Uh, do we have anything else that we want to say about Blade Runner? I think we need to render a verdict. That's I feel the thing good. we need to say. We, we done Flushed wrestled with it. Yeah. yeah. So what do we say? Shell for trash, Elser instead. Well, no, we're not doing Elser instead. We've already oh, done yeah, Pay attention, done. old man. Shell. Just well, shell for trash. Is, see, is I, it? the new format trips me I up. I know. So now, now... Shell for trash, just what, that. So I guess we should kind of codify what shell for trash means in this new phase of the show. We've kind of been getting here for the last couple of weeks, but now that we are not doing our Elser Insteads here at the end, we're just going to kind of talk about, is this uh, is this a film worth keeping in the conversation? Uh, if so, uh, why or why not? So I'm going to go to you first, Arthur, picker of the film, selector. In memoriam, so um, shelf or trash? What do you say? I gotta say shelf. I, I really do. I, I I think its influence and its uh, standing of the test of time kind of speak to its power and and just uh, it holds up so well. And I think it is so um, pivotal to a lot of conversations in in film and in sci fi culture and in literary. I mean, 
cyberpunk. I mean, you're talking about whole genres that have kind of been built around this one work, you know, from from Scott and from Dick and, and all those sorts of that era. Um, and, and video games as well. I mean, there's the influence is in music, like you mentioned. I mean, it's influence knows no boundaries, it seems. I mean, it has been highly influential. I think if you want to talk about films and kind of those metatextual conversations and how films speak with each other to uh, deliver a message that might otherwise not be there, I, I think you have to see Blade Runner at some point, you know? I know there are a lot of movies, but I, I think this is one that you try to make time for at some point, you know, uh, and, and catch because it is... Uh, interesting uh, in dialogue with a lot of other films. Do you pick a version when you make that shelf selection? Uh, I, not, I mean, I don't know that I've ever seen the theatrical cut. I think I've only seen probably the director's you or the just final grab cut. A, you grab a box yeah. set with all five cuts. Yeah. That's, and yeah. watch that's all the, five? No, no, no. They just all need to... It's part of the conversation with the film. And you I just think. sort of like occasionally watch one. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you just see one of those. I mean, any of them. I think just the elements that resonate are there in all three versions, right? I mean, the the, the look of it, the themes... Whether you like the voiceover or not, that's a different story. But as far and even open up those conversations of studio intervention and mm -hmm. the Hollywood, the movie making machine itself, I think is something you know we've we've kind of talked about it in the past. Uh, we talked about it a lot on Daredevil. I know uh, just that idea of a studio stepping in to say, "Hey, no." We've talked a lot about it with Netflix recently with the Mute and Bright. I think uh, you know, having those conversations of some directors need a leash and some can do their own thing and. Um, so I I think all of that, I mean, this is one of those movies, probably along with Brazil, where you can kind of look and, and talk about studio intervention and, and what that means uh, with film. And so for me, it's shelf. I, I think it should be part of the conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? You say shelf or trash for Blade Runner? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to get to a point where uh, historical cultural clout doesn't immediately get something a, a shelf pass. You know, I, that you don't get to... Uh, skip uh, to the front of the line in terms of canonization just because you're important. Just because you're Casablanca or whatever. Yeah, or, yeah. or just because you're Blade Runner. Yeah. But, I again, the conversation we've had today has been really great. And uh, as Arthur mentioned, it is probably one of the most influential pieces of American film from the late 20th century. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a big damn deal. And, uh, look, I want to put 2049 on the shelf, and I can't put the sequel on the shelf without the original. So there you go. There you uh, go. It goes on the shelf for all the reasons Arthur said. I mean, it is a kind of just a wonder of a picture do i think it's a little boring yeah honestly uh do i love looking at it though god yeah i really do it's so pretty uh do i get confused every time uh the enhance shift right scene happens yes every single time i get confused and forget what deckard is looking at in that picture it's uh it baffles me but uh, i still like it and uh yeah as as we've said it's probably one of harrison ford's best performances yeah uh, I, it's great it's truly incredible uh, I think it's one of the few movies that gets his persona. Um, we didn't talk about uh, Harrison Ford's kind of dangerous sexuality, uh, especially as it is yeah. displayed in this film. It's gross. Yeah, um, I don't like it. Yeah, you know, I wish we had talked more about it, but I think there you go. That's another reason to put it on the shelf. There's a whole lot to talk about going on. And that's on in kind this of movie. a weird kind of noir trope. Is, it's is it's the, a noir? the girl who says no, but she means yes, mm -hmm. and like mm -hmm. you know it, and mm -hmm. so that's how you. And it's gross. It, it's very gross. Well, they're trying to do something subversive with it, but it's the 1980s, and nobody knows. Well, no man making art in the 1980s knew dick about yeah. <laughs> how to have conversations about consent, as we've seen as we've reexamined the films yes. of the 80s. It's a problem. 
But uh, again, I think we probably could spend another 15 minutes talking about that scene alone. Um, so there's just a whole, just so much going on here, and it's such a wonder to look at and has created uh, or helped create so many other wonderful things. Yeah, hell yeah, let's put it on the shelf. It, it deserves to be part of a, our our larger film conversation. Well, as we began our conversation earlier, I was already warmer on this film than both of you, so obviously for me it's on the shelf. It's, it's a great movie. And Is every- this the first full all three of a shelf in, it, in the year? Of 2019. Tombstone? I, Tombstone. Tombstone. That's right. Yeah, yep. for sure. I think there are a couple of those Westerns that's right. that might have. So, yeah. Well, I think Tombstone's the only Western I shelved. Was it? I think so. Yeah. Uh, and though I like Westerns. Um, but, yeah, I totally agree. Um, I think this movie is definitely shelfable, not just because of its canonicity and its sort of tult- cultural sort of clout that it carries, as Dalton said earlier, but because it raises really, really interesting questions. And I find it fun. I mean, you you mentioned it being boring. I've never been bored by this movie, ever, once. Things can be both boring and fun. Okay. Really? Yeah. I don't know called Not boring. at the same it's, time. I think I, it's just slowly paced. It yeah. is slowly paced. But, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm game. I'm in for it, for me. And so, and I, I would say all the three versions that I've seen, pick one. And, uh, you know, I don't, I mean, I think I like the final cut the best. Those unicorn scenes are arresting. They're cool. They're very arresting. Yeah. And not having them, I think, is definitely a detriment to the film. But that being said, not having them, you don't know what you're missing. So, whatever. Um, so, six, five to six and pick them. You know, whatever. Um, so, watch the movie, watch the movie, watch the movie. That is my recommendation for that. So, we are done with this. We're going to do a potpourri a month. And I guess I'm going to come back. Well, One more time. Yeah, we've revamped the show, so uh, that bit is now in the trash. You're going to have to find a new bit. A new bit. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta, you got to freshen it up. Get, uh, get on the game. Okay, what am I going to try next? Also, well, we, we talked about potpourri, but I think we kind of swerved that direction because it is March. It, it is, is Women's History Month. It is. Good we call. haven't done many female directors lately. Uh, no. We, we did pretty good last year, but this, this year's been pretty dry. I well, mean, because cowboy movies. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Damn it, we should have done Meek's Cutoff. Son of a bitch. Or the writer. I would have went with either one, but... Yeah, it's too late. Fail, now. guys. Well, hey, fail. hey, a lot got, of movies. There's a lot of movies. Um, so we're gonna really kick this off next week. Me- next week. Next week. You me- really messed me ne- up there. Next Meekus. <laughs> next Jonas watch- Meekus. We're gonna watch uh, <laughs> female director Jonas. Mikus we're gonna movies. watch. Uh, we're gonna kick things off for a couple reasons with this film. One, uh, there's a big uh, remake, reboot, whatever readaptation coming out this year. Like a sequel. Legacy. Well, no. readaptation. Uh, yeah, readaptation. Money grab. Reupping. <laughs> Uh, of one of Stephen King's most notable f- books and a kind of cult horror film, and that is Mary Lambert's Pet Cemetery. Yeah, so we're going to kick off our kind of women's appreciation uh, marathon, mini marathon with Pet Cemetery, featuring Herman Munster. Yeah. Uh, yes. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen it? I have Long seen. Time. Uh, I've seen bits and pieces of it as a child. I remember the Achilles tending, attendant slashing really messing yeah. me up. Is that in the first one or the second one? It's in the first one. Okay, uh, I think it's the first one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's yeah. Uh, that's uh, Judd. I, I have horrific images forever seared into my brain, but no, I don't really remember. The also, movie. the kid from uh, Kindergarten Cop, right? The boys have a penis, girls have a vagina. That's no Gage, kidding. I think. No yep. kidding. Well, I'm very excited to talk about this movie. Uh, I'm very excited for uh, the sequel or remake, whatever. Yeah, looks uh, fun. Yeah, well, we'll get another film from the '80s that uh, has a much uh, delayed uh, follow-up yeah. next week. It'll be fun, and, fun uh, uh, through line. And if you want to watch along, I believe it is streaming right now on Amazon Prime, Ooh. so you can watch that with us and uh, join the conversation next week. 
right. it's so rare that we do horror movies outside of October. Uh, I'm excited. I feel like we're last last spring we did Carrie, so maybe we're going to do this thing in and Prince of Darkness. So maybe every spring we'll hit yeah. a horror movie one, now one and then. Scary well, movie. by the time we get to spring, it's been six months since we've really talked about a horror movie. So we're, and we're just and the world is scary. Oh God, yeah. So we're at the um, point of the end of the show, and I want Dalton to take into account the exhaustion of the listeners mm-hmm. and tell us about social media. Hey, yeah, it's here at the end of the show. Um, I hope you had a good time. Uh, we, we certainly did. Hi, how are you? Uh, we don't have ads on this show. We tried it once before. Uh, it turns out selling out isn't actually that profitable. And so, it sucks. It's a bummer. So we don't we don't have ads. We just have a Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash GTM. You can go there to help support Good Trash Media, keep our lights on. If you don't want to give us money, that is perfectly fine. There's plenty other ways to support the network. Just go to goodtrashmedia.com for everything good trash. We've got this show, the genre cast, but we've also got the Praise Down with Heath and Alex, A Loose Five with Wampus Reynolds, uh, the Borgo cast with Dustin, a bad feeling about this, written content from Arthur and Dustin, sometimes our, our frightful film curse and Thurkelson. Not much lately. I'm trying to, uh, hoping we can convince her to uh, write some more. Mm-hmm. But uh, tons of fun stuff over there. Go to goodtrashmedia.com for more information. Uh, obviously, we like it when you rate, review, and subscribe to this show and all of our other shows. It's nice. Uh, last but certainly not least, we are fighting the good fight over at Twitter at good underscore trash. Uh, social media is the battleground of the 22nd century. Don't you forget it. Be ready. Um, yeah, I said the 22nd century, Dustin. That's uh, we're going to be all uh, have our consciousness and, uh, consciousnesses uploaded to uh, social Been media. Three of them already. I know, and you're going to get to go through three more because we're going to they're going to have to put our brains on the internet so we can survive the uh, polluted <sighs> wasteland we're creating. Okay. Uh, so yeah, at good underscore trash on Twitter. Uh, there's a listener group on Facebook. Uh, thanks for uh, that, Keith and Smith. I don't know how that's coming along because I'm not on Facebook, but I know he's it, it exists or will exist. So yeah, we're done. I hope you're not too tired. Excellent, excellent. Well, there you go. Um, that is a show, dear listener. Tell us what you think about the new format on those via via those magical means of social media already mentioned. And you keep watching, and we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. The GenreCast is a product of Good Trash Media. For more info, uh, go to GoodTrashMedia.com. I already told you to do it once. Our outro music is much like our intro music, created by a friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers. Uh, he's not on the internet, but uh, he appreciates that you like the music. Bye.